Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. This morning we do start a new series, and as uh, Pastor Seth already brought us to this place, uh, as, as he led the team and put forth this opportunity for us to read through the account of Pentecost, let that be a reminder as we walk through this series together on spiritual disciplines. I know and you know, uh, we've heard it a million times, if you've been around church, perhaps you've only heard it one time, if you haven't heard it, this I'm going to say right now, this Christian relationship is a relationship. It is a relationship between us and Jesus. But, but in that, within the context of that, it's not a religious endeavor, but there are opportunities for us to grow through spiritual disciplines. Grow through spiritual disciplines into which we engage in physical things that we do to be able to experience God and to know God in a greater way. Have you ever heard the phrase before that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink? Anybody heard that? It's an older phrase, an older adage. One of the, the big points behind that is the recognition that you can, you can bring something to a certain point. You can bring someone to a certain point. Maybe it be one of your children, or maybe it be an employee, or, or whatever that might look like. You, you bring someone or something to a certain point, but you can't force them to take a certain, at a certain point, they have to, to make the decision on their own. Within the context of this series and this, this recognition in life, there, there's a certain point within our lives where we can do the work, so to speak. And so I don't want us to get this wrong impression of spiritual disciplines like it's some kind of a magic formula for once we do all the disciplines that are in Scripture, that everything's going to be perfect and that God's going to do all the things that we need. Instead, let me just help us to, to kind of frame this for just a moment. There was a, a saint that, that lived in the 1500s named Teresa of Avila, Avila of Spain, and, and, and she uh, coined this concept, this recognition of the interior castle. In fact, she wrote a book on the interior castle. It's a, it's a, it's a great, uh, great book. It basically highlights seven dwelling places to which we live in a spiritual, uh, in a, in a spiritual realm within the context of our lives. And the interesting thing to note, if you were to read through these seven dwelling places, these seven castles, is that as you read them, each one has specific elements to it that we do as the creation, the creation of God, and then what God does as the creator, the one who has put all things into motion, the one that still engages with us. And as you walk through these dwelling places, number one, obviously, uh, not obviously, but number one, focus really deeply on the, the action of the individual, on you and I. And then two begins to start to ease off of that, less about discipline and our action, more about what God does. Three gets to a place where it's a, there's a lot of action on the part of the individual, on the part of creation. And then finally, there's this, this clear transition from, from, from dwelling place, from castle number three to castle number four. And this specific dwelling place goes from a place of recognizing the fact that we hold very little control within the context of our own spiritual walk, and God holds the majority, the most of it. While we do have a relationship where there is free will involved, we get to this place where we hand it over to God, and he therefore brings it in his time, in his way. And so as we approach and as we engage in these spiritual disciplines, may we recognize that there are going to be times where you're, quote, doing all the right things. 
you're praying, you're, you're fasting, you're resting, you're doing all the things that God might want. You just, you just feel like you're not moving forward. You feel like you're not being filled. You feel like you're not experiencing God in a deeper way that you feel like you might. Let me just say, that might be because you have gone from a place of, of, of dwelling number three to maybe four, five, six, or seven. And somewhere in that realm, God is leading and guiding in a way where you might not know or experience or fully comprehend in the moment. Be encouraged. God is at work. God is moving. Do not quit, but continue to engage in those disciplines as God teaches you, leads you, and guides you. How should one pray? Today we're going to discuss passionate prayer. We're going to walk through specifically Matthew chapter 6, and the portion of it recognizes Jesus' example for prayer How should one pray? One should pray eternally. One should pray selflessly and humbly. We know that. One should pray not necessarily thinking that there's some kind of a magic formula, but doing so uh, with the the recognition that God himself is there listening. God himself has an open ear to us who's who's listening to our words, listening to our actions, is, is present in our lives. But even in that conversation, sometimes things can get lost because our intention, our motive is wrong. The passage we're going to look at today, in fact, I'm going to turn there if you want to as well. Like I said, it's in uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The passage parallels this giving to the needy and and at the same time is bookended on the other end with this uh, practice of fasting. And here, because it's not primarily the action or the motive of the heart, the recognition is that when prayer is done, when prayer is engaged and when prayer is facilitated with God, that it must be done with a posture that is humble before our God. One that recognizes who God is and who we are. One that that comes forth recognizing the the creator of the universe, the perfect plan of the creator, and the reality that he has a plan that maybe you and I don't always necessarily see. I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, and then we're going to walk back through and pull some specific points out of that. You can read along with me. It'll also be on the screen, and it starts like this. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words." Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then Jesus transitions here in verse 9 and says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I love the prerequisite as this starts in verse 5. It says, and when you pray. 
That's an interesting note there. It's not a if you pray. It's not if you ever get around to praying. It's not a, oh, if before you go to bed, if you want to go ahead and say a few words before you doze off to sleep or, or jot a prayer up to me real quick before a test or before, you know, a difficult meeting you know you're going to have. No, it's and when you pray. Recognizing here, Jesus is saying that if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of me, if you're a disciple of the king, then you're going to pray. You're going to interact. You're going to talk with God. It's not just about that initial prayer where you say, God, will you please be my Lord and Savior? But it's a relationship that continues through this conversation. The historical background here is interesting. If you look at it, Jesus is talking specifically to those that are present. Many of those that are present would be uh, considered some of the spiritual leaders of the day. And there in that moment, the Pharisees were all about power and control in that moment, attempting to try to, to, to manipulate the situation and attempting to try to, 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 to downgrade Jesus's power and to try to get their own will across because of their own, the only treasure that they want to build. And so Jesus is here. He is engaging in the, the, uh, the prayer motives of the hypocrites that are there. And so in verse 5, it reads once again, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. This word hypocrites, it's a noun, it's it's, um, defined like this. It says a person who pretends to have virtues, morals, or religious beliefs, principles, etc. That he or she does not actually possess, especially a person whose actions contradict stated, uh, stated beliefs. And so basically they live differently or they have this differing belief system than their actions would indicate. Jesus isn't stating here that you shouldn't pray publicly. Some might read this and say, well, that means that we're supposed to pray only in private. Well, the recognition here isn't that you're not supposed to pray publicly. He's actually getting at the root of their prayer, the, the root behind their prayer. Revelation 19 talks about prayer with those who live in eternity. There's this this. this this corporate, this communal prayer. Luke 1, Acts 7, 1 Samuel 2 talk about corporate prayer and teaches that we should be believers should pray together, that that is part of our role in corporate uh, worship. We should pray together. Matthew 18 talks about where, there, where two or more are gathered in prayer, this concept of coming together. And so if we look at scripture as a whole, we recognize the fact that Jesus isn't saying don't pray together, don't pray publicly. Instead, he's getting to the heart of the prayer. He's highlighting the importance of the motive. Wrong motives can be off-putting, can be deceiving, can allow Satan to get a foothold. And he's saying, don't be a hypocrite. It's not about being seen. We don't necessarily see this very often. You and I probably don't walk uh, around uptown Athens and see someone on a street corner praying very often. Sadly, that's, that's the reality of it. No one's standing around praying and no one's standing around like a Pharisee shouting out their prayers so that people might give them attention or give them power. But we do see it in other forms. Maybe you see it on an Instagram devotion, right? And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you see it on there, the perfect uh, Bible laid out with the coffee. And it's like, wow, and the amount of time you posed all of that. Think about, no, I'm just kidding. But the, the, you see it in musical worship sometimes. There might be some that we see, we recognize that, that uh, they're not necessarily within the context of church, but even in the context of, of seeing it in performance-based uh, musical worship. How about um, conference junkies? Sometimes you see people that go to uh, Christian conferences all the time and they're constantly sharing those specific things. 
and all of it, the recognition is this, it's not about the prayer, it's not about the public profession, because sometimes those things can have a positive impact, but it's all about this recognition that it is me-focused endeavors. What can I get out of this? How can I uh, portray myself in a specific way that, that highlights how good I am, how perfect I am? And the point is this, when prayer's purpose has earthly goals, it will yield earthly rewards. In fact, the second part of that verse says, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What, what Jesus is saying is, if you do this here on earth, you're going to get your reward on earth and that's the end of it. If our desire is to be seen and heard by people now, and that'll be our reward. And that's what an earthly reward is. It not, might not be done through the method or expression that the, the passage is, is expressing here, but it could be the result of the content being prayed. The posture or the content can play a role in this. Either way, our prayers, our giving to those in need, our, our spiritual life should not be selfish. The passage moves on in verse five, or excuse me, verse six, it says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus picks up with this understanding of here's how you should pray once again. In this simple summary, do not interpret it too literally. It doesn't mean that we always have to pray uh, in, a, in our home by ourselves. In fact, uh, the recognition here uh, should be made that most homes in that day didn't necessarily have a ton of rooms like we might see in some of the homes uh, in, our, in our day. Instead, there would be one specific room, maybe a closet. And so therefore, even if you did pray, most of the people in the home would understand and know what was happening in those places. What Jesus was expressing was the pattern of projecting a motive that does not require a person praying to be seen. We don't have to be seen. We don't have to collect those, those, those jewels here on earth. Instead, what he's saying is, get alone with me. Sometimes we think, okay, if I just have, if I have my, 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 the right books, and I have that sweater, and I have, you know, my, my warm beverage, and I have my Bible and all these things, then I'll be good. No, what, what Jesus is saying is, no, you just need me. Yeah, I speak through the word, and yeah, I can speak through these other things, but you just need me. And the, the reality of that second point is this. Authentic prayer does not attempt to draw attention to, one, to the one who is praying. The purpose for praying, what Jesus is saying right here, especially to these people that were listening and the hypocrites that were praying, is look, it's not about drawing attention to yourself. In fact, he's looking at, at this concept from John the Baptist, not a couple of chapters earlier, where he says, look, I, people come to John the Baptist and they want to worship. He says, look, I'm not the one. But in all that I do and all that I say and all that my actions, I point towards the one, Jesus, the one that will come. Pointing towards God. Stephen said when he was being stoned, forgive them, Father. Not, oh, please have mercy on me, but forgive them, Father. Pointing towards God. Even Jesus himself, forgive them, Father. Why do I contest here? Jesus is saying it's not about us. And then verse 7, And when you pray, once again, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. 
Do not continue babbling. Do not continue trying to come up with some specific verbiage or some voice that will be honored by God. You know, I, I'm not a, a gamer. I don't, I don't play a lot of video games, but I remember when I was younger when my, my cousins got this really cool video game and I remember they got this book that went along with it before the internet was really around and that's where you would kind of get your, your codes from. And, and so I remember uh, staying up with them one night on a, at, a, at a sleepover and we were just reading through trying to put all these codes in. And the funny part was before that with that same game system when the code time would come up we would try to guess what they were let me tell you God's not out there trying to to, trying to get us to a place where we're trying to guess what the right codes are so we can activate God's do what I want mode no what he wants us to do is engage with him in a specific way authentically where we we are direct and straightforward and communicate with him so that he knows us and we can know him what other relationships do you have where you're attempting to try to babble along with somebody, trying to say the right words, trying to say the right things until they finally say, yep, okay, you've said the right thing, now I will do whatever you want. Jesus was expressing the, the reality here that there's, there's not a secret code or particular phrase that will manipulate God into doing what we want. And the point is, authentic prayer does not attempt to persuade God to do things for us. The purpose of authentic prayer, the, the content of authentic prayer is not about persuading God to do the things that we want him to do. You might remember last week uh, when we talked about uh, Abraham, we or two weeks ago when we talked about Abraham, we talked about when he was trying to persuade God not to destroy the kingdom. Even in that, that persuasive prayer was not necessarily God do my will, God do what I want. Instead, Abraham was reflecting upon the nature and the character of God saying, God, do your will. And your will is to reconcile, to, to, to bring forth a, a transformation, to, to save and to bring life in this situation. And then when Jesus is talking, he transitions here after verse 8 into what many believe to be kind of a, a, a ritualistic uh, uh, um, passage that's just recited so that there might be some sort of understanding that, that, that God unleashes in some code fashion. But instead, what Jesus is doing here is he's not only sharing and expressing how to pray, he's getting, or what to pray, he's also giving us an opportunity to learn how to pray. Because what's, what's embedded deep within each of these lines, each of these verses, are expectations, understanding of what authentic prayer truly looks like for the life of a believer. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's look specifically at these verses as we walk through them. The first one there, and we're going to kind of march through these fairly quickly. The first one there is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is like the dear God kind of beginning of the prayer. It's kind of who you're addressing, who you're talking to. But, but notice here the intentionality behind Jesus' address as he begins to establish what prayer looks like, especially the beginning of it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that, re what that reflects upon and what that reveals is that Jesus is recognizing God is the God of the universe. God is the creator of all. He's petitioning to the God's kingdom and will and not his own. 
The prayer doesn't begin with, God, do this for me. The prayer begins with, God, you are God. May I praise your name. And the recognition that goes along with that, the petition for God's kingdom and will is surrender. A surrendering of who I am and what I'm about to recognize the fact that God is God on the throne, creator of all, and take a deep breath, I am not God. You are not God. And so when we address him in prayer as Jesus right here reveals and demonstrates this example, we do so first and foremost figuratively or maybe literally on our knees before the creator of the world, the God of all. The second part as he continues goes like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here we recognize that right, right in this moment that there's this, this, this desire on Jesus' part for his will to come into, uh, into, into right alignment with God's will. You know, oftentimes we do come to prayer with an agenda, specifically when we're in, you know, the first dwelling place, as I talked about earlier, maybe even the second one, we come with an agenda, God do this, and maybe even sometimes the things that we're asking God to do are good things in our world. But the recognition here is that God is the provider. He's the one that gives us our daily bread. And the petition for, for daily provision is, is hearkening back. And Jesus' uh, understanding, and for those that would, would have been there, hearkening back to the days when Jesus, or excuse me, when God provided to his nation manna. He gave them sustenance. He gave them the food they needed so that they might live. And there is dependence. We are dependent on our God. We're dependent on our creator. We're dependent on the one who has created and sustains us. And if we don't live with the understanding of dependence, recognizing that the things we have, sometimes that we've earned or sometimes that we gain miraculously, those things that we have are, are a gift of the God, the one who has created and loves us, both our needs and our wants. Jesus continues, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts is a petition for forgiveness, a petition for cleansing. The believer knows, the, the, the follower of Jesus knows that at some point in our life we had to have this moment once and for all where we ask God for forgiveness for the brokenness that we have brought upon ourselves. And the result of this brokenness has brought forth a separation between us and God. And here we reflect upon that again. And Jesus brings us to a place of recognizing this unity with God and also unity with the body, with the church, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as this, 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 this asking, this petition for forgiveness, we receive, we experience cleansing. The passage continues, as we also have forgiven our debtors, a petition for forgiveness for those who trespass against you, those who have done wrong against you, those who you think, man, I just want them to, to experience or to receive justice. But what Jesus is demonstrating here is, look, sometimes in life, justice is going to look different. Sometimes I'm going to do it in a different time, in a different way. It's not for you to respond to or you to bring forward or you to, 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 to act on. Instead, God is saying right here, uh, Jesus is saying right here through his prayer to release all of those things. 
Because Satan wants nothing more to allow you to sit there full of bitterness and frustration and anger. And as you hold those things in, especially towards somebody in many cases that doesn't even know you have them, he knows it's going to eat you up and cause you to be separated and living in disunity from God and from others. And finally, as you engage in prayer, this then is how we should pray. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this might be one of the most comforting portions of the prayer. And that is the petition for protection from sin and evil, deliverance. Get this, God, he wants to deliver us. He wants us to come to a place where we experience him afresh and anew. He wants us to to receive his deliverance from the sin that we have brought upon, the, the, the result of the sin that we have brought upon ourselves. God loves you. He wants to bring forth a new day in experiencing of his forgiveness, his love, his compassion. So we pray to God in heaven, not a creation, not, not to something that is created. A recognition of the sacrifice that he's made, that, that's been made possible for this. We acknowledge that God is in charge and always will be. We reply, rely upon God to provide our needs. We request forgiveness of sins and we forgive those that have sinned against us. And we ask God for guidance and protection. And we look specifically at this prayer that Jesus has placed before us. We can see that it's not as much about the method specifically as it is about the heart of the person who is praying. Because even through the context, through stepping through these different methodical steps, which there is a method there, we see the fact that God is doing a work within the person who is bowing before the throne of God. And so we return to that initial question asked at the beginning, how should one pray? And the bottom line is this, passionate prayer is engaged through the power and by the example of Jesus. You and I have the opportunity to go into the throne room, to go into the presence of a holy God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has given us the power to experience him. And at the same time, through this passage and through many other things that we read about in scripture, particularly throughout the gospels, we recognize the fact that he's also given us an example of what it means to bow ourselves before the king, what it means to to, to live in unity with him and with others, what it means to ask for his will and not our own, what it means to ask for his protection and his deliverance and his forgiveness. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless. God bless.